0: Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to start reading in verse 30. Section we were in last time, because these sections all connect. There's an awful lot of connections all the way through this chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. Um, Luke chapter 12, verse 30. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your, your Father knows that you have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God And all these things shall be added to you. Fear not, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves bags which grow not old, a treasure in the heavens that fails not. Where no thief approaches, neither doth moth corrupt. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And we've looked at that already. We're going to look at it today. We're going to look at it a little bit again next time. But we're moving on uh, in verse 35. Let your loins be girded about and your lamps burning. And be yourselves like men that wait for their Lord. When he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily I say to you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to eat. And will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or in the third watch. And find them so. Blessed are those servants. And this know that if the owner of the house had known. What hour the thief would come. He would have watched. And not have permitted his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also. For the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Father, bless us as we gather to look at uh, this section of Scripture. Use it in our lives. In our blessed Savior's name we pray. Amen. Americans are all very familiar with Benjamin Franklin, part of our history. And Benjamin Franklin was not the first person to say this. But he is the most famous person who said it. Benjamin Franklin said, in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Remember that statement? Very famous statement. And the full quote, if you, if you uh, study it, was given right after the signing of the Constitution of the United States. And uh, someone, and Frank, this is the full quote as Franklin came out of that meeting. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. He's talking about the constitution that was just made. It has an appearance that promises permanency. Even Franklin knew the constitutional government is a fragile thing. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain, not even the constitution. Nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. That's the full statement. That was made 233 years ago. The quote means certain things in this life are unavoidable, including dying and have to pay taxes. And uh, Will, Will Rogers, who was a famous American with a lot of interesting quotes, said, The difference between death and taxes is death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. (laughs) (laughs) So Americans understand death and taxes. You're always going to be paying taxes and you're going to die. But the fact is, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, that there is a third thing that's certain. And that third thing is the second coming Of Jesus Christ. That is certain. That's more certain. Than death. Or taxes. That is certain. And as you know. With the parable of the rich man. He didn't factor in on the certainty. Of physical death. And that got him didn't it. And many don't factor that into their life. Although people die around them all the time. They go to funerals, they hear about funerals, this one dies, that one dies, but somehow they think they're the exception. They may not say that, but they operate that way. And many have heard that Jesus is coming back, but they just don't think it's going to happen. The emphasis of Jesus here is it is going to happen. I'm coming back. And he's hammering that in this parable. He's going to hammer it again in the next parable. He's going to hammer it again and hammer it again as he moves towards the cross. He's still a few months from the cross. He's just going to start hammering it more and more and more. And the second coming of Jesus Christ is a third unavoidable fact. More certain, in fact, than death or taxes. The second coming of Jesus Christ, if you look at it broadly, and not all the in all the details, but if you just look at it broadly, he's going to receive his bride at the church at the rapture. He's going to rescue the Jewish remnant from the armies of, that are attacking them at Armageddon. He's going to judge the whole world in righteousness. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to reign not only in the millennium, but... In the eternal state, the new heavens and new earth. This is an unavoidable fact, according to Jesus, that must be recognized if you're going to live successfully now. It's more certain than death, more certain than taxes. You know, billion, there's a lot of billionaires who don't pay taxes. They got accountants and can get them out of that. Some of it, I know they have to pay gasoline tax and all that, yeah, but they get they get out of a lot of taxes. Can't get out of all of it, and even the church is going to escape the the last generation of the church is going to escape death. Will not all sleep, but will all be changed when the Lord comes. So, taxes can be avoided, at least some of them, even most of them. Death can be avoided. But the second coming of Jesus, no, no, nobody gets to avoid that. The dead don't don't get to avoid it. They're going to be raised. The living don't get to avoid it. They're going to be dealt with. Nobody can avoid that. So this morning, I want to talk about that. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to us now and for all eternity, at least from our text as much as we can glean from it in the little bit of time we got. First, there's four points I want you to look at this morning. The the, the, the second coming of Jesus Christ, as we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, it is certain. That certainty is guaranteed by several solid facts. The certainty of the second coming of Jesus is guaranteed by certain solid facts. I have three of them, fact A, B, and C under this point one. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke publicly about his second coming before he was crucified. Some have suggested that the early followers of Jesus made up the second coming of Jesus Christ because of his crucifixion and failure at his first coming, much like the followers of that New York rabbi have actually done the same thing. That rabbi that died, what, 20 years ago, they really believe he's the Messiah, and he's going to come back. That's how they get around it. They've made it up a second coming for him. But clearly, uh, Rabbi, was it Schneerson? Is that his name? I've forgotten his name. But clearly, the Lord Jesus predicted his personal return months before... He died. And this is significant. This is not something his followers thought about after he died. Now what are we going to do? Let's put a smiley face on this. Let's invent a second coming because the first coming uh, ended in a tragedy. That's not what happened. The record of the gospel of Luke is that the Lord Jesus Predicted his personal return as the Son of Man months before he went to the cross. It's significant. It's very significant. And when you get to verse 40, you move from parable to prophecy. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes... At an hour when you think not. And if you go back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Jesus grabs that title, that august title of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Where the Son of Man gets from the Ancient of Days the right to rule and reign the whole world. And all the kingdoms forever. That's Daniel seventeen, thirteen and fourteen. And it comes after a long history. Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Media Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. It's only after those have run their course that the Son of Man goes to the Ancient of Days and gets his right from God the Father, who is the Ancient of Days. To rule and reign forever. That's the source of this great son of man saying. You know he does it in other places. The son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's the first coming. But the son of man is coming to rule and reign. Nobody anywhere will be able to avoid that. It's an event of uh, worldwide significance and it turned to that passage i know you know it but please turn to it it helps to read it daniel 7 i know you know the context we've taught daniel here several times daniel 7 start reading in verse 15 well excuse me verse 13 after the vision of the four great empires that relate to Israel. Go back to verse 9. Sorry, keep going back. And I beheld till the thrones were placed. No, this is after the Roman Empire. And I beheld till the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Now God's not an old man, but as He's pictured with the white hair, it's, it's picturing as His eternality in a visual apocalyptic way. And a fiery stream issued and came forth from before Him. Thousands and thousands ministered to Him. Ten thousands time ten thousand stood before Him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And I beheld because of the voice of the great words of the horn that spoke. That's the Antichrist. I beheld even till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. That's the destruction of the kingdom of this world at the second coming. And after the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives are prolonged for a season and a time. And here it is. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven. That's the second coming from heaven came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now watch what Jesus is saying about himself when he takes this term and applies it to himself. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now this dominion, glory, and a kingdom is greater than anything Xi Jinping has, Putin has, Biden has, everybody put together. It says that all people, nations, languages should serve him. Now the Antichrist wants to usurp that. He wants, he will get for a time uh, a worldwide control, but only for a time. And he's a usurper. This is, cause this, uh, the Son of Man gets this from God the Father. His dominion is what? An everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Once this starts, it never ends. It's an eternal kingdom. It's not like, it's not like the Neo-Babylonian Empire that started this big stuff in this great Babylon that I built. Yeah, it started, it stopped. Media Persians took it over. They had a great empire. Media Persia was ran in the ancient world. It started, it stopped, Greeks whipped them with Alexander the Great, it started and stopped. The Bible predicted all this before it happened, and the Bible predicts this before it happens. And so, and then the Romans took over. But anyway, this one will never be destroyed. And verse 23, he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and devour the whole earth, tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that will rise. And, and That's not Jesus' kingdom. That's the kingdom of the Antichrist. And another shall rise after them. He'll be, he'll be diverse from the first. He'll subdue three kings. He'll speak great words against the Most High and wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change the times and the laws and they'll be given to him into his hand to time and times in the dividing of time and that hasn't happened yet but that's coming but right when it gets as bad as it can get the judgment shall sit they'll take away his dominion to consume and destroy to the end that's the antichrist And the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Why do we get it? Because of our relation with the Son of Man who gets it. He gets it and therefore we get it. He's heir of all things and we're co-heirs with Christ. Whose kingdom is what? An everlasting kingdom. Kingdom. In contrast to these other kingdoms that come and go, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. That's the prophecy Jesus reached back and grabbed to describe His return at the end of history and what will be happening then. This is our Lord's designation of Himself. This great event at the end of human history. The Lord Jesus Christ revealed this about Himself. And He didn't. this was not something the church invented after the cross. Again, to put a smiley face on His failure. This was not. He's talking about this before the cross. And He doesn't just do it here in chapter 12. He does it in chapter 13. He does it in chapter 14. He does it in chapter 17. He does it in chapter 19. He keeps doing it. Not only predicting his death and resurrection, but his return at the end of history to rule and reign. This is well documented in the Gospel of Luke that the Lord Jesus was constantly talking about not only his future death at the cross and his resurrection and ascension, but his return. And so, very, very clear. Second, this is point B. 1.1, this is point B under point 1. The Lord Jesus spoke about these things in front of thousands of people. He not only said it before he was crucified, he said it before thousands of people. Look back in chapter 12, verse 1, and I want you to look at verse 1. If you have a Greek text, you'll see that word. Comes from Murios, myriad. It says, in meantime, there were gathered together innumerable multitude. Innumerable is the word that's translated in the King James from uh, this word. The NIV translates it crowd of many thousands. And Whenever you see this word in the New Testament, you can just run a. Linda and I were discussing this this last week. Whenever you see this word, it's it's dealing with thousands. That's the number. It's different numbers of thousands, tens of thousands. In Acts 19:19, there were. It's used of the pieces of silver that were collected from the in Ephesus of the magic books that were burned. In Acts 21.20, it's used of the megachurch in Jerusalem. There were thousands of people saved in Jerusalem after they were scattered once and rebuilt, and the twelve apostles focused on it there. It's used in Hebrews 12.12 of us when we will come to an innumerable company of angels. It's used of the angels in heaven. This word is used of the thousands upon thousands of angels in heaven. It's used in uh, the book of Jude. The Lord's going to come with ten thousands of his saints is how it's translated. It's used in Revelation 5, 11, and 9:16 of those that are singing in that end time event of the heavenly choir. Now, we don't, it, th- this is a general term. I don't think anybody calculated this. Now, we've got ways of doing that on computers. Now, they can take a photo and estimate how many people were in the crowd. They do that. I don't think Luke did that, <laughs> but he's simply describing a vast crowd of thousands of people, and that's enough. Now, not all these people were disciples. Some of the people in this crowd were disciples. Some were not yet disciples. They were just hearers. But what I'm saying is, Jesus said this. If you start at verse 1 and if you've got a Bible with the red the red print is a man-made thing just talking about the words of Jesus look 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 what's going on here all these people nobody's gone home they're hearing it all so this was something Jesus said about his second coming these parables that we're going to study in front of thousands of people now Put this in your mind. We're talking about 33 A.D. here. Luke's gospel was published around 65 to 70 A.D. about 40 years later, after this event. And you remember in 1 Corinthians, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, 25 years after the resurrection, he said, you you know, the 500 that saw the Lord, there's an awful lot of them still left. There were only 500 that saw the Lord, but most of them were still alive 25 years later. Well, I would like to give, even in those times when life expectancy maybe wasn't the same as ours, out of thousands of people, how many of these do you think were left when Luke published his gospel? I'm sure it was over a thousand still living. And uh, they're still there, just like... I was at the beginning of the Bible class that started this church in 1970, September 1970. That was over 50 years ago. I'm still here. You want to know how it happened? I'm history. (laughs) That's what uh, Tom Gibbons said to me. He said, I want you to speak at the conference in in Lee Conn. He he says, You know why? And I said, What? He says, You're the history. That made me feel real good. <laughs> yeah, I've been been with the mission, so you know, long enough. I'm the history. Now there are a couple of people. There are people been with the mission longer. Uh, Terry Thompson and Daryl Thompson. Their families, but uh, I start, there's Not too many of us, but there's some of us. <laughs> and so, with, what I'm trying to say here, if Luke, you know, when you I believe personally myself that Luke recorded these events and was planning this gospel and Paul was quoting from it before it was published. But it was published probably around 65 to 70 AD. It became public. You can't publish stuff that's not true when there are people who are alive that remember what you're saying what you're not saying. And I, I'm not trying to be political here at all, but President Joe Biden is not known for being truthful. His first run for the presidency was broken because the news, the news recorded caught him in lies, several of them, about his college days, about his time in South Africa, civil rights, other stuff. He was caught... Why, how did they do that? They played the tapes. This is what he said. And you know what? They're still doing it. And he's still lying. Now, he's not unique in that. Politicians lie. It's like it's endemic to them. It's what they all do on both sides. They lie. But thank God we got people who were there, or we got tape people videos that were there. Now, Luke didn't have videos, but Luke had people. This could be checked. I I want you to understand what I'm saying here. The certainty that Jesus said this before he was crucified is partially not only based on the fact that Jesus is truth and he cannot lie, but it's just based historically on the fact that you can't publish this stuff and get away with it when there's thousands of people that were there. And could say he said it or he didn't say it. I think that's, and remember, people who lived before computers and, and, and before a lot of, uh, not everyone was uh, uh, able to read and write. Memory. They had memories exercised in ways we don't even imagine. So there's no way I believe that this could be just made up by Luke and he could get away with it. Uh, in any way shape or form and so thank God for that it's just a second point here just helping us these thousands of people heard all of this stuff now Jesus talked about the second coming also among smaller groups of people after this and uh, he did that in Jerusalem uh, after Palm Sunday he really opened up on it but uh, the fact that there were thousands that heard this first time, this is the first time he mentions it, certainly is an excellent point for the fact of it. Point C under point one. After his resurrection, Jesus taught on the second coming as well. His post-resurrection ministry included taught, uh, teachings on the kingdom of God. And remember in Acts chapter 1, the disciples said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Why did they say that? Because that was on their minds. Why was it on their minds? Because he was teaching on it. In that 40 days after he was risen from the dead, it was a great subject that he was teaching on and they, they wanted to know the when question. And Jesus says, not, to, not for you to know the, the times the Father's put in his power. You know, he didn't say it's not going to happen. He simply said, it's not for you to know that, the time part. So it's a precious thought. So the certainty of his return, I think, is pretty well established by what we have here in, in a marvelous way, in that it wasn't made up by somebody after the fact, after he died. It was something he himself taught. Now, if he was right about being crucified, and if he was right about being raised, And if he was right about ascending, I think he's also right about his return. And the angel said, this same Jesus is going to come in like manner as you see him go. And so the angels confirmed it. So the certainty of this great fact of his return, I love it just because it's here in chapter 12. Second, the accountability for people when he returns. It's not only a certain event. It's an event when mankind will be held accountable. And that's a precious thought. And in these verses, William Graham Scroggy outlines them this way. These verses are about Christ's second coming. The fact of his coming, coming, verses 35 to 38. The time of his coming, 39 to 40. The issues of his coming, 41 to 48. There will be issues. There will, be, uh, there will be ramifications. There will be things that are, are, are going to happen at that time because of it. Eternal issues. Harry Ironside said, There's nothing that has such a sanctifying influence on a soul as waiting and watching for the Lord's return. And he said, it's a poor thing to talk about holding the second coming if the second coming does not hold and mold you. (laughs) I hope we hold to the second coming of Christ. And Christians sometimes differ about the details, right? Reformed Christians and dispensational Christians, we got a family discussion here. And I hope it's always a friendly one. We differ on the details, but we don't differ on the fact He's coming again. And some of our hymns we have a hard time singing because the writer has a little different in detail than we have. But we sing them anyway because we know He's coming again. And someday we'll find out who got it right and who got it not so right. And but the one fact we all get right, if we believe the Bible, He's coming again. Sometimes we can argue about the details and we forget the great event itself. And I believe in teaching the details as God reveals it to you. I believe every church should do that. I don't believe this is audiophora. I don't believe this is something that doesn't matter. It does matter very much because what happens then often determines what you do now. And your view of the future determines your view of the present. And that's really what this text is all about. Uh, Joel Green said of this section it describes the certainty of his coming but the uncertainty of its timing in other words nobody knows if anybody thinks they know or they make a mathematical thing 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988 that book's not selling too many copies anymore (laughs) but we, this, we know the certainty of his coming, but we, we also know the uncertainty of its timing. That's the whole point of this. The guy can come back from the wedding at any time. Or the thief can come at any time. He doesn't call you on the phone and says, I'll be there Thursday at 5 o'clock. Load your 357. He comes when you don't know and there is a certainty about his coming there's an uncertainty about his timing and that's a big part of this lesson just like none of us know when we're going to die the doctor says he got 6 months you may have 6 years they told my grandmother she was going to die uh in uh 6 months and she lived about 4 more years doctors are I thank God for doctors i believe in doctors I go to doctors, I thank God for them, but they're not prophets, they're doctors. They just know statistics. And that's, you know, they're going by that. And so, very important. But here is, here is the picture here. And it's, it's, it's good for us to remember There's going to be an accountability when Jesus Christ comes. We don't know when He's coming, but there's going to be accountability. And the uncertainty of the second coming is like the uncertainty of death. We don't know when death's coming. And we don't know when Jesus is coming. You don't always have a time to make a will. You better make it. (laughs) It's too late to make it when you're gone. And we don't always have time... We don't have time to be ready for the second coming. What if it happens and you're surprised? You can be surprised by the second coming just like you can be surprised by death. The man in the parable was surprised by death. And Jesus is jumping off of that and saying, oh yeah, there's another interrupter. Death is an interrupter for everyone down through history. But my second coming will be interrupter of history itself. And so, what an awesome thought it is. In that way, the second coming is like our personal death. We know it's going to come, but we don't know when. R.T. France, the New Testament scholar said, honoring God as king and being ready for the return of the Lord, which must take priority over the ordinary concerns of life. That's the big idea here. honoring God as king and being ready for the return of the Lord which must take priority over the ordinary concerns of life. The ordinary concerns of life can be overwhelming, can't they? I've got to take care of this, I've got to do this, I've got to get educated, I got to get support my family, I got to pay my bills, I got to do this, I got to do that. But what he's saying is the Lord has said there's a big idea here. Yes, you have to take care of the ordinary concerns of life. You can't avoid that. You have to take care of it. But don't be so preoccupied with that that you forget that tomorrow may not be an ordinary day. It may be the day Jesus comes. And remember that the man comes back from the wedding at a time when you don't think he's coming. Robert Murray McSheen used to ask his congregation, do you think Jesus will come today? And they'd say, no, I don't think so today. He'd say, remember Jesus said, I'm going to come in an hour when you think not. <laughs> so, important. So the certainty of our Lord's return is our first point, And the accountability at that return Is the second point. We are going to be accountable to him. When he comes back. And. There's all kinds of details. About that accountability. The judgment seat of Christ for the church. And the great white throne for the lost. And all of that stuff. But without a question. The Bible teaches accountability. It also teaches there's going to be a reward. For faithful service. That's the whole point. Here. An amazing reward for faithful service. And now let's, let's start looking at this just a little bit and look at our parable. Verse 35. Let your loins be girded. That's which, that's how you girded your loins when you're eating the Passover, right? You're ready to travel. And this doesn't work for people who wear pants. But men didn't wear pants. I hate these preachers that say, oh, women shouldn't wear pants because it's a man's thing. Well, men didn't wear pants in Bible times. <laughs> you ever think about that? If men wore, if men wore pants, they wouldn't have to gird their loins. The girding of the loins is when you take your robe and you reach down and you pull it up and you tuck your robe into your belt. So you can work and travel without tripping over it. Or fight. When someone's loins are girded, they are ready to travel, they are ready to fight, they are ready to go. And Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. How about that for an expression? How about uh, roll up the sleeves of your mind? Same thing, right? Come ready to listen. Come ready to work. That's the picture. So, let your loins be girded about and your lamps burning. Remember, they didn't have electricity. They had these lamps, oil lamps. And and be yourselves like men that wait for their master, their Lord. This is a parable. This is talking about a... Man that goes to a wedding and he says I'm coming back and I want everything ready when I come back. I want everything ready. That's the instructions. You be ready for me to return. And the whole picture is you don't get ready when you see him coming down the road. You are ready whenever he comes. You don't know when he's coming. So that means you can't take a nap. That means you can't Ungird your loins. That means you can't let the lights go out. That's the picture. Your job as a servant is to be ready for him when he comes and serve him. One of the writers I read, I think it was Reich, and he talked about a restaurant, famous restaurant in Philadelphia, and they're known for their service. And when you start coming up the walk, they open the door for you. And you're handed a menu. You are You don't have to pick a table. They've got one for you. It's known for its service. And uh, they're ready. They don't wait till you come in the door to be ready. They're ready before you come up the walk. Somebody's looking out the window. Oh, here comes a car. Let's get ready. There's six people. There's five people. There's two people. This is a picture of people who are exhorted to be ready. Let your loins be girded about, your lamps burning, and be yourselves like men that wait for their Lord when he'll return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Nobody has to say, "Uh, give me a couple minutes. (laughs) When he knocks, the door opens, everything's ready. And if he come in the second watch or in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And it says in verse 37, excuse me, I skipped it. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord when he comes shall find them watching. Watching's the key word here, more than working. These are people who are, know the master's coming and they're looking for him. They're ready because they're watching. You've heard me say this before. My dad had a restaurant, and he would never, I could, it was never allowed to tell him goodbye. He was going to the bank, or he was going to do something else. He hated it. He said, don't you ever do that. He didn't want the workers to know when he was there and when he wasn't, because he knew what? When the cat's away, the mice will play, and when the boss is away, the workers play. People don't normally work as hard when the boss is gone. And there are people that will start goofing off as soon as the door shuts and he's out of there. Or once in a while they might look through the window and see, is he coming back? He's not here yet. All right, more goof off. And then they're all busy right away at the last minute. That's the picture here. And my dad would go out one door and he never came in the same door he went out. He'd always go into another door. or another. Why? Because he didn't want him to know when he was there and when he wasn't. Yet my dad understood human nature. Uh, but here the Lord, these servants are ready. They're ready because they haven't been goofing off. They're ready because their lamps are lit, their loins are girded, they're about to work, and they are perpetually ready. That is the picture. And there's an accountability. And so it says, in ver- the word blessed is used here twice. Blessed are those servants. Uh, it says in verse um, 36. And you be like men that wait for their Lord when he'll return from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they'll open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord when he comes shall find watching. Verily I say to you that he'll gird himself and make them sit down and eat. And will come forth and serve them. And if he come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so... Blessed are those servants. And this know that if the owner of the house had known that the owner of the house, that the steward of the house is what's going on here, not the owner, not the Lord. This is the steward over the rest of the servants. It's picturing the leader of the church. Had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have permitted his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. We've all had somebody surprise us at our house and we didn't have the house picked up. Now, my wife would always have it picked up if she wasn't married to me. But since she's married to me, she has a perpetual perpetual problem there. I tend to scatter books and stuff everywhere. But this ready, and there is a reward, there's a blessedness for it, and... It goes on in the next one, and I want to skip to the next one just for a moment. In verse, uh, Peter said in verse 41, Do you speak this parable to us and even to all? We'll get to this next week. But the Lord said, Who is the faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give him his portion in, of food in his season? Blessed is that servant the Lord when he comes shall it find so doing. Of a truth I say to you, he'll make him ruler over all he has. just like Joseph was made ruler of all Potiphar had that's what our Lord's parable teaches about the church's position in the future who are ready now there's the other side of not being ready and we'll deal with that later in the next next, next week uh, but the people that aren't ready the people that are unsaved They're professing Christians that are unsaved. They might even be leaders in the church but are unsaved. And they're put with the unbelievers because that's what they are. It's not a believer that lost his salvation. They end up with the unbelievers because that's what they really were. Now that coming kingdom is a gift. It's not something we earn by faithfulness or watchfulness. We see that in verse 32. It's your father's a good his pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's a gift. Give you the kingdom. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to what? Give you the kingdom. You don't earn it. You don't work for it by watching and working. It's a gift. Just like salvation's a gift. By grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. You can't earn your salvation. You can't even really earn your reward. But the kingdom is a gift. But there is a reward for those who are saved. But the first thing we need to see is salvation is not by merit. It's not by our works. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, and Ephesians 5, it uses the term, you inherit the kingdom. Now, the unsaved aren't going to inherit the kingdom. But the saved will inherit the kingdom. Inheritance isn't something you earn. Inheritance is something that's given you. I don't know anybody, any of my stuff. Even my kids, I can decide, they don't get anything. Now, that's not how I'm going to do it. But... It's a gift. An Inheritance is a gift. We can't earn citizenship in that coming kingdom. It's a gift from the king. Just like salvation. But we can seek the coming kingdom. That is God's gift to us. And we seek it because it is his gift to us. We look at things in this life differently because we have an inheritance. We've got a kingdom. It, it's, it's given to us. Now being in the kingdom and rewards in the kingdom are two different things. And the accountability deals with the reward part. So we looked at the certainty of Christ's return. We looked at accountability at, at his return. Now I want to look at priorities in light of his return. Okay, Jesus is coming. He's coming back. Nobody knows when. There's accountability as return. So how does that affect my priorities? Okay. I've got this life and I've got the next life. Uh, this life is, what, 70, 80, 90 years max. Next life is forever. Hmm. Shouldn't that affect my priorities? If you're playing Monopoly and you got somebody wants to trade and they say, I'll, I'll give you the purple property for the blue property. Well, pretty obvious what you do, right, if you know that game. The purple property is the cheapest property. You can make the less on that. The blue property is the highest property. You make the most on this. If they want to give you Park Place and Boardwalk for the purple property, All right, good trade. I'm in. I'm in. We ought to have priorities in light of our Lord's return. This life is the purple property. (laughs) The next life is boardwalk and parkway. The next life is where the returns are. Eternal returns. And what a marvelous thought it is. Verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord when He comes will find them watching. Verily I say to you, He'll gird Himself, make them to sit down to eat, and will come serve Him. Unheard of. Nobody ever did that in the ancient world. Now we have appreciation parties sometimes, and the the, the management will serve the workers. And that's that's a good thing. Good thing for them, good thing for the workers. But that's kind of rare. It's kind of rare. Sometimes it happens. But here we are talking about not management. We are talking about owners. Jesus is the owner of everything. He is the Lord who died on the cross of Calvary and rose again and ascended and is coming again. And he pictures himself coming back from the wedding He pictures himself as surprising the servants that are watching with serving them. Can you imagine? it? Our Lord washes our feet in this world, John 13, of our sins. He will actually serve us in the next world according to this parable in ways that will totally stun us as if it's not just good enough to be there we have whatever this parable is revealing it's stunning I don't want to miss this I don't want to, I don't want to not be there I want to be born again I want the creator of the whole universe who died for my sins to be doing this and humbling me by his very doing it. This should affect everything we think about, everything we do. This certainly should be, this is a surprise of all surprises, really. This should take precedence over everything. That future kingdom with our blessed Lord and what He is, what He has planned to do and be for His people that are saved and faithful. That should take precedent over everything in this life. That future should be so real that we will invest in it now. With the old saying, put your money where your mouth is, well, put your money where your heart is. Put your money where your future is. If your future is in this world and that's it, all right, I can see putting your money there. If your future is in the coming kingdom, I put everything there. And that brings me to this thought, the fourth point: prosperity in the light of Christ's return. Who are the prosperous people? The one percent in America? Well, some of them could be prosperous in this world and prosperous in the next. But prosperity is not something just for this life. The real prosperity that you that is important is the prosperity in the next life. Very, very short-sighted if you're prosperous in this life financially and have nothing in the next life. And that's why Jesus said in verse 33, sell what you have. He didn't just say... Give some of your money. He says you're to give in light. You will divest yourself. Of some of your possessions. For the sake of people that need. That's an amazing statement. Most of us give some of our money. But we don't not really. So much on selling our stuff. Now he doesn't mean sell it all. And be a pauper yourself. It's not what he says. It's not what he means. That's. And I can prove that biblically, but I, maybe I will today. Maybe we'll wait till next time. But many basically saying, sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves bags which grow not old and treasure in the heavens that fail not, where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupts. The thief can't touch this. The moth can't touch this. My daughter gave me one of those really nice Fedora hats for Christmas one time, maybe. And I, you know, I I like the hat. I like it a lot. I don't want the moths to get it. I'm always checking it. Oh, did moth get this yet? Well, sooner or later they will. So everything's got moths in this life. And then there's thieves. I don't worry too much about thieves. Uh Because I don't have anything. <laughs> <I get steel. laughs> Everybody knows where Pastor Hickson is on Sunday morning. would be a good time to break into my home. All right, break in. You're not going to find too much. But the point of this is, the if, the if you knew when the thief was coming, you'd take measures to protect yourself from them. If you got something that they can take and get. And that's verse 39. If the owner of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. And not have permitted his house to be broken into. So the picture here is the Lord's coming. You don't know when he's coming. So you've got to always be ready. For that coming. And he defines ready there. And part of being ready is... Uh, being about his business as servants so that we will be recognized at his coming as his servants and as those who served him. A.T. Robertson said, did Jesus on verse 33, sell what you have. Did Jesus mean this literally and always, uh, and, uh, and always? Luke has been charged with ebionism. Ebionism was a cult in Christianity second century Christianity lasted for a while they called themselves the poor they believed everybody ought to sell everything they had a few heretical ideas as well on the person of Christ the goofy stuff but uh, Jesus does not condemn in this verse property as inherently evil or sinful he doesn't do that it's not wrong to have your own property And many Christians had their own houses and retained houses Like uh, the house in Acts 12, right? Or like Philemon had a a church in his house. Or like Lydia had a church in her house. They didn't sell their house and become homeless. They retained property, but they used it for the Lord and His work. But the point here is, if there's a need that comes to your attention and you can meet it, you sacrifice to meet it. That's what he's really saying. On this occasion or that occasion or whatever. Not that you make people irresponsible uh, because the phone never stops ringing uh, if they find i got a live one, right? And so that's irresponsible. If you give to people that are using it on drugs or using it irresponsibly, you can't give to those that really need it. Ironside said, Jesus is not advocating thriftlessness nor was he inculcating idleness, nor unconcern as to one's future responsibilities. you got to try to save for your old age and your parents, and even aunt and uncle, if I read First Timothy 5 right, especially aunts. You take care of them, so the church is not burdened. We have a personal responsibility to try to take care of our own, our children and so forth. And sometimes that means you want to leave them something in inheritance. So he's not saying divest yourself of all your possessions. He's simply saying that's not your security. Our possessions, our bank account, our stocks, our houses are not our security blanket. Our stuff is not that. He's certainly not excluding private ownership of property like Marxism does or investment... Or investments in this life for the future, but a willingness to divest ourselves on occasion for some others who are in need. Giving's an act of faith. Did you know that? It's a great act of faith. If I take money out of my wallet, it's not there for me tomorrow. I can't use it if I gave it to the missionaries. So giving is a great act of faith. The two pennies the woman put, she gave more than they all didn't she because she divested herself totally but that was considered a big thing to Jesus it's not the amount you give it's the amount you got left but the picture of this is modest expectations of our needs in this life and not be selfish self-centered but to be God-centered and other-centered and future-centered and the picture is we don't have to be the important people down here We can give and trust God for the future. And we got a kingdom then, we got reward then, and we got the whole universe then, it's all ours. So we don't have to make a big show here. Now the early church gave, right? They gave. They, they, they sold stuff, they did that, although some of them still kept their stuff. I can show you that. They didn't sell it to the point of total poverty. But they did give sacrificially. Remember, Barnabas sold, had a piece of land and he sold it. Gave it to the apostles. And 32 years later, Barnabas was working. So he wasn't independently wealthy. He was working right alongside of Paul. Now, I happen to think he was wealthy, and but sooner or later it ran out. Now, maybe he would have had it a little longer, but sooner or later he had to work. And that was okay with Barnabas. I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 9, 6. What a blessing he was to the church. Uh, And remember what uh, Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira. When it was your own, it was yours. It wasn't ours. You didn't have to sell it. He's very clear about that. You didn't have to sell it. It was yours. And after it was sold, it was still in your power. Even after you sold it, it was still your money. You didn't have to give anything. Their sin was not not selling everything. Their sin was pretending they were giving more than they were. They were lying to the Holy Spirit. So, you know, important stuff. Geld and I said, It's not the possession of material things that makes one worldly, but the attitude adopted towards them. I think that's a great statement. Some people can have big houses and big cars and it's nothing to them. They're just using it for the Lord. That good car is an investment. They don't have to repair it so many times. It's well made. That big house is an investment. They're using it. They have a need for it. Or maybe they can't get what they need out of it, and they're sitting on it as an investment. That's okay. But the point is, Christians want to be givers, and they want to seek the kingdom, not life down here. William Kelly said, riches before God cannot be without what men short-sightedly count as impoverishment unto self. Unbelievers hate it that Christians give. They don't like that. Because they really don't want to give. And we've got a whole uh, uh, political movement that says they don't give themselves, but they want to tax everybody. They're real generous with other people's money. And they salve their conscience with that. I'm generous because I vote for big taxes. And then they skim a lot of it off of themselves. some political thing. But God help us. We're not looking for anything back when we give to the Lord. Ryland said on the word seek, to seek is to set your heart as to make it your main objective. What you seek is what you think about. It's what you pursue. It's what you live for. We're seeking the kingdom, right? That's what it says. It says, rather, verse 31, in contrast to the whole world, rather seek ye the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. We're looking at what God can do for us. We want a, a life that way. We want an adventure that way. We don't, we don't think life is high fences around a grass meadow. We think life is a shepherd leading the sheep in the still waters and through the valley of the shadow of death. And in the green grass, we want that life with the shepherd's provision. We want to experience God. And we can, whether we're wealthy or not wealthy. It's an adventure we can all get into. I have to say, God has provided for my family marvelously. (laughs) We've had a great adventure. I've never had to think about money, never taught, never asked for money ever in my ministry, never begged for money over the pulpit, never asked for a raise, never. God has always provided. I love that adventure. I'm thankful for that adventure. I can't even imagine that I could tell you many stories how he provided Cyril of Alexander said, Give away these earthly things and win that which is in heaven. Give that which you must leave. Think about this. Give that which you must leave even. That you must leave even against your will. That's what's going to happen at death. You're going to leave it. Give that which you must leave even against your will. That you may not lose things later. Lend your wealth to God that you may be really rich. (laughs) Who's really prosperous? The Solomons of this world? Who have to leave it to other people? Read Ecclesiastes 1. That really bothered Solomon. Is that guy going to be a good man or a fool? And I'm leaving him all my stuff. You see, we all have to lose... We're going to lose our house. We're going to lose our cars. We're going to lose our collections. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have collections or cars or houses or any of that. But we're going to lose them. They're going to be gone someday. Because we're going to be gone. They're not going to do us any good. So why not send some ahead? <laughs> that's what that's what this is teaching. If you really believe in a coming kingdom, send it ahead. The really prosperous... Prosperous people are those that send it ahead. They're waiting for the Lord. That, That coming of the Lord is a big thing. They're living for the moment. There are people today who are living for the moment that they have in this world. And there are people who are living for the moment when the Master returns. Two kinds of living. Picture servants. The master's away. Whether my dad's restaurant. All right, let's play now. Everybody goof off. There are those who live for the moment when the master's away. That's every unsaved person. They're grabbing everything they can grab. He's gone. And there's who are living for the moment when the master returns kinds of living. It has nothing to do with your income. has nothing to do with the size of house and car you have. It has everything to do with your attitude towards what you have. People say one bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. We're not talking about birds. We're not talking about bushes. We're not talking about time. We're talking about the human history is on a collision course. Not with climate change, but regime change. The King of Kings is coming. And I know I'm over. But I saw a cartoon that was quite clever. It's an IRS office. Behind the desk is an IRS uh, inspector. And there's a chair in front of him. And the angel of death is sitting on the chair in front of him. Remember? Remember? Nothing is, (laughs) taxes and death. And the caption of the angel of death, the black angel of death is, I knew, I knew this was sure to happen someday. Even death was going to get taxed. (laughs) But I want to tell you something. There's going to be a time when death will be no more for God's people. Revelation twenty one four. There was no more death. Do you know there's going to be a time when there's no more taxes for God's people? Matthew 17.24.26 There's going to be a time when death and taxes are over forever for God's people. But there is accountability and there is prosperity. And life demands that we invest in that now. Jesus said, I'm coming and my reward is with me. Revelation 22, 12. Are you ready for His coming or are you unsaved? Totally unready. We're ready for His coming when we've admitted our sin and trusted in Him as our Savior and our Lord. We're ready for His coming when we've invested our life in that coming kingdom by ministering to others And whatever our financial station in life, we use it for Him. May God help us. Thank you, Father, for what we've looked at today. Challenge us with this truth today. In the name of our Savior and Lord and coming King, Jesus Christ, amen.